You're listening to Mysterioso. This is our first episode. Mysterioso is a podcast attached to the press, Mysterioso Books. Our first book is Liberation and All the Other Bright, etc. It's a poetry chapbook by C. Derek Vaughn. And uh, appropriately, our first guest on this new podcast is C. Derek Vaughn. Uh, how are you doing this morning? I'm doing okay. How are you? Um, I am doing fine. And uh, I'm glad we finally uh, we were able to get the, our, uh, our schedules coordinated so we could talk. I'm really, really impressed by this book. And uh, I'm very, very happy uh, to, that we were able to get this going. Oh, can you uh, can you tell me just a little? I mean, uh, I, I know you uh, fairly well from listening to a lot of political podcasts, especially through Zero Books, and I'm sure people mm-hmm. who have uh, come to Mysterioso will be coming. Uh, some of those from either Zero Books or from my former podcast uh, radio program, The Other Future. But um, I, I'm also assuming because Mysterioso. Uh, incorporates a lot of uh, artists and uh, and uh, people outside the activist and political realm that you mm. need an introduction. So could you tell us some about yourself? Yeah, um, I am a poet, uh, editor, um, vlogger, podcaster, uh, and I'm probably more known for, well, I'm kind of known in two completely unrelated worlds that only kind of half um overlap so i have written a prior book um with unlikely books um apocalyptics which is a book of poetry um i've been publishing poetry for 22 years since i was about 17 years old um and i've also been uh, working in political commentary um for a long time uh, specifically Marxist political commentary since about 2011. Um, I started writing on the subject in about 2009. Um, although um, as much as as much production I do on podcasts for this uh, sort of thing, I actually like I don't write for um, you know, a lot of the standard left-wing publications, both um, because I'm not inclined to and uh, and also on principle. Um, and well, in what way? I mean, not to interrupt your introduction, but I think uh, that that's an interesting thing you just said. Uh, you don't write for standard left-wing publications on principle. Yeah. Why so? Um, because most of them um, underpay, they... Um, they uh which 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 is a strange complaint from a person who's willing to do work for free but <laughs> yeah exactly but um i am not like when i publish poetry for free there's no pretense of like me participating in a world where we're advocating for you know labor rights and fair compensation or whatever and yet we also do not give them ourselves i had i ran into that contradiction when I ran a um, uh, a, a, a somewhere between a blog and a magazine called North Star Magazine, which we had inherited from uh, 
uh, Fam Bing, uh, who put me in charge, and you know it was funded by um, by Louis Project Project, and we started feeling bad that like we didn't pay our editorial staff, we didn't pay um, our our authors, and you know, and that was a not-for-profit publication, meaning that like no one was making money off of it. I know a lot of the left-wing publications are ostensibly also nonprofits, but um, I find that the compensation in the compensation left-wing publications tends to be so low and sketchy that it actually leads to easy poaching of writers for um, right-wing publications that want less veneer. Um, I'm thinking of like um, American Affairs, for example. Um, And American Affairs articles probably pays like three times what the paying left markets do, three to four times what the paying left markets do. Um, I just choose not to participate in that. Plus, I also, I tend to think that most of those projects end up the way the nation magazine and mother Jones and all those magazines have historically ended up, which is they, they try to affect immediate policy so much that they have no choice, but to be effective organs of the Democrats within about five years of their birth. Um, and, and even when they posture to the contrary, there is no way out. And I'm not, I'm, I won't mention the modern magazines that uh, that are strongly implied in this, but it you know it won't take people a long time to figure it out. But I will mention the historical ones, both both Mother Jones and um, and the Nation started out as socialist adjacent publications. Right, of course. Right, and uh, and we know where they ended up, and. Um, I would rather publish stuff in in non-political um, public, even when it's punditry, than play that game. Um, yeah. And uh, it's it's actually kind of it's an interesting side effect. Like I would write a book for a press tied to some of these groups, and I don't have anything against the people personally running them. But I, I, and it's because I don't think like this is uh, like an intentional thing that these magazine editors and stuff set out to do. But um, uh, maybe, you know, maybe it reflects some of the pessimism in my poetry, but I do think like you can game theoretic the the trajectory most of these things are going to take. Like, so that limits who I work with um, and why I mostly work with my own. you know, with my own models, even if it means I don't get compensated. Um, now, my rules for poetry and stuff are very different. Um, one, poetry is unfortunately kind of a closet art. Um, if poetry makes money, it's usually because it's tied to a fad. Um, right. Okay? Um, and so, you know, it's, if I was expecting everyone to like, you know, pay me the big bucks for my poems, um, I would be foolish. But having worked, because I worked for Zero Books too, I know what like relative book sales are. So for a poetry press, and, and you know this too, you you know, you, right. you, I'm sure you have this going into Misterioso, like a chat book, you're expecting to sell like two to 300 books, right? And you can, you can probably do okay, maybe, maybe 500 at, at the absolute high end. 
right? Right. Um, whereas in, in nonfiction publishing and political publishing, because the market is so much bigger, um, if you don't make a thousand sales, you actually lose money. Correct. Um, even on a even on a micro press level, but it, it also says there's a lot more money in the system, and so it's like, well, why aren't you paying me? Uh, right. <laughs> um, well, and know, I, I know that sounds. Mm-hmm, go ahead. Well, I I have this uh, this project in the back of my mind and also uh, not quite on the back burner, but it's something that I've been slowly working on. Um, the pandemic year uh, really slogged everything horribly. Mm. Uh, and now things are picking back up. And uh, the project is uh, called The Acid Left. It's a, it's a website. I actually began um, the project with several other people, but they've had uh, more time to devote and, and they're more interested in memes. And uh, what I'm interested in is the promotion of leftist projects, uh, specifically mm-hmm. things that get you offline. But as I'm doing this, I'm wondering if there is uh, a way to um, to have a business model that we could call left wing. And I know how ridiculous that sounds to everyone, uh, and to, to me even as well. But, you know, we... Uh, if you look at, and I'm bouncing this off of what you just said, you were talking about uh, not writing for people because of the, the compensation that they're giving, which is, is obviously very tiny, but also uh, works against the very principles about what you're writing. And what I'm wondering is, is there some way we can take steps toward uh, a, a realization of those principles or realization of projects uh, and, and situations that instance those and yet uh, not quite get there yet. You know, like if you look at uh, a lot of the 19th century writers and what they were pushing, not just Marx, but, you know, Kropotkin and so forth, and it, pick anyone really, uh, when you look at the day-to-day realization of what they were pushing, you get things like, a shorter uh, work day and a shorter work day going from 12 hours to 10 or 10 to eight sounds uh, like very little given a complete reworking of society or a revolution or something grand like this. It, it almost seems like you surrendered, but there seems to me that there could be some way that we could have um, a business model that allows us to, uh, while making money, push away from uh, an exploitive situation in our daily in our day to day lives. I don't know what that is, and maybe I'm you know I'm just gassing on <laughs> in my own brain about it. But um, I yeah well, I think there's some interesting points to bring into that. So for example, the way I handle um, podcasting, I produce so much that there's no way I can possibly edit it even though I know how to do sound editing, right? Sure. Um, and so I go in with a, with a percentile model for, for the, the revenue we raise, and I refuse to offer someone nothing. Okay. Um, in fact, what I normally do, even when I can't promise payment initially, is like, okay, we're going to set up a Patreon. If you do the editing, you get 50% because that's double the work. And then if you and then if you are co-host with me, we split the remaining equally, 
And I basically work off of a a cooperative profit sharing model. Like every person who participates gets an equal share according to their labor time. Now, from a Marxist perspective, this is still suboptimal. I mean, like, like it, um, it's, it's not great. I would still say, for example, we are self-exploiting, but self-exploitation is better than other people exploiting you. Yes. So it's, it's one of those things where I'm like, well, I don't think co-ops are super revolutionary, nor are they going to end capitalism. But I do think that I, I do think that when, when you're dealing in a petite bourgeois situation, um, that it's probably the best way to handle things. And I, that's how I handle any publishing project I do would be, would be automatically profit sharing too after the initial cost of producing the book was recuperated. Um, so there's that. Um, I also like come at a lot of what I do with the explicit um, to uh, zero book somewhat chagrin actually with the explicit attitude that um I am not in it to make money. And so this is, this is something that, that I think people don't really have, haven't, haven't always grasped with me, but like, um, I think if you have to make your career as a professional leftist, (laughs) there, there are literally certain things that you're, you're going to trend trace, even if you're trying to critique and get out of it, you get into these cultural cul-de-sacs. Like if you, even if like you think the both sides of the quote culture war are dumb, if you're trying to make money off of, off of commenting on that, you have to play the game because it's actually a semi-closed system. And so one of the reasons I say independent is I, I, I will now take money for what I do um, because the, the amount of time invested means if I don't get compensated, it's, it's stupid and I'm not rich. I'm a teacher. Right. So like, like it's, there's no way I could do this without some compensation, but I never, I set out with the goal to not let making money be what drives me. Um, I was very hesitant, for example, to put anything behind a Patreon paywall. I resisted it for years. Right. Um, uh, I don't think there's a way to avoid it now, but I now try to like do where the most substantive end of the conversation is actually the free part. Right. So, um, well, I, agree. I don't try to put the best stuff behind so, the wall. If you're mm-hmm. making your money uh, professionally from your opinion, you know, giving your opinion publicly, you're going to be sucked into uh, that paradigm in the media right now of exacerbating, uh, like the culture war, but Matt Taibbi talks about that in Hate Incorporated, you know, how the media is pushed into these uh, almost WWE type situations, caricatures of opinions, you know, that, uh, that just bolster these, uh, these million or almost reptilian responses of, uh, of rage and moral outrage mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, posture. And yet Taibbi can't himself get out of it. Exactly. Like, I mean, I, exactly. Think, I think of like Taibbi's current Substack is actually like falling victim to the same thing that he knows is going to happen. And exactly. I don't hold that totally against him either. Like, it's just, you know, once yeah. you're in that world, 
it's almost unavoidable. Right. And and his latest takes on Gogol and his latest take on Marcuse, uh, mm-hmm. I mean, they're they're awful, really awful. But uh, but they've generated hype, attention, you know, clicks and so forth. Uh, and uh, and people posturing, you know, with fist raised on both sides, and that's exactly what he was discussing in the media as uh, as uh, you know, falling into the paradigm uh, the, he mentions in Hate Incorporated. So I understand that. I'm just wondering if there's, and I, again, I still don't know um, how to how to proceed with this, but I, I know that in um, in the late '90s, for instance. I was involved with a lot of people uh, doing these grassroots anarchist projects. And some of them were pathetic. Some were uh, mildly successful, and a few were very successful. One of which was a successful one was a construction business that I was um, involved with with several people. And we um, we would take on projects. We would divide everything equally. But we essentially did kind of a uh, almost a Josiah Warren type time breakdown. And so everyone, whatever time you put in, that hour was equivalent to anyone else's hour. But if you spend an hour, um, you know, essentially ordering materials or talking to a customer, then uh, that was the same as if you were actually framing up a wall. So it, it, it worked well for a while. Uh, it was, you know, at some point people moved on, but it didn't really seem to encounter major problems. And, uh, and it's just one little realization. I know some people, I believe, um, in North Carolina were running a bakery, and it was just uh, a bunch of people that were ideologically committed to anarchism that uh, got access to uh, you know, some ovens and things like this, in a, a failing bakery, took it over and did something very similar. And they actually stayed completely off the books, um, which was much more, much more possible at that time. But they, uh, but they did well. And I, I'm just, you know, in this, this upcoming website, what I intend to do is take no money, you know, for, uh, for promotion of whatever project you have, much like mm-hmm. um, Nonsense NYC, you know, the list, he, uh, he promotes uh, projects going on across and events going on across New York City and takes no money to promote them as long as they're independent, not corporately funded, et cetera. And, uh, but he does take donations. And, you know, therein lies this other emerging paradigm. Right. Which, you know, it, I, I sometimes call the like the e-busker paradigm, right? Like, right. like, I mean, Patreons often work. A lot of my Patreons work that way where like. Like we, our benefits are, you know, for the Patreon is like you get access to speak with us and um, you're basically just giving us charity, continue doing what we're doing. And we try, and it's not a lot. Um, Now that's not how anything works with zero. Zero is a business, but zero is not the only podcast I do. Um, Similarly, like with, um, with artistic works, um, uh, my first book was, it was kind of inundated in a weird um, marketing thing that confused people because if you look at my first book, there's a picture of Trump right. on the cover. That's actually an accident. Um, the original art chosen for it was uh, an, a collage by an artist that I respected out of France. Um, 
that was about George W. Bush, and it was appropriate to apocalyptic time period because what apocalyptic time period was written between uh, 2000 and 2015, believe it or not. Um, so it was a 15-year process. And I'm actually not commenting on Trump at all, and I'm not writing, um, if, you know, um, and and you, um, I'm not writing about um, politics directly very often. Although, if someone was to ask me if my poems were political or not, I would have a very hard time answering that question um, because they 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 are written in the context of. You know, the from the Iraq War to like um, the Great Recession um, to like healthcare crisis, right? Th- that's all in there. But I find directly didactic poetry, um, like in people who try to set out to make socialist art, um, to be, well, frankly, shitty. Like it's a lot, it's not, it's not good. You know, um, so. And um, so when I do artistic pieces, even when I, even like, like the, the, the chapbook I did for you, which is, um, you know, liberation, all bright, et cetera. One thing I think your readers are going to have a hard time figuring out is what notions of liberation am I engaging with? Um, because, and that's deliberate. Um, it's deliberate to conflate um in fact, I deliberately conflate not just political and social forms of liberation, but like um, liberation in a Buddhist and liberation in a Christian context are also brought up um, indirectly in ways that conflate and almost undermine the the way the idea is used. So, so for me, when I deal with art, I can't say it's political or non-political because it's not didactic in that way that people often think political poetry is. Um, and it's not social realist in this way where I'm trying to expose you to the real lives of, you know, this, that, or the other, but it is, you know, it is not non-political in the fact that if I was to try to disengage from the political world and writing any of this stuff, it would also be fundamentally dishonest. Um, and so, you know, it's been one of these things that I've been interested in, you know, the quote acid left for a while, because um, I distrust the, aesthetic, the aestheticization of political theory. Um, um, fundamentally, I think it leads to people being lazy thinkers and, uh, um, and, and the, it leads to the memification of ideas that can't be memefied. Um, and so, you know, I, I find it interesting, like, you know, when you were talking about the acid left and the people you're working with more interested in making memes. And I was like, well, that, to me, um, like, this is the same kind of structural impetus of, uh, that you see, like, in, um, in uh, like, the popular commentary stuff. If, you, if you're trying to make an aestheticized vision of... Um, politics popular and easy to digest you're always i mean i hate to say this because it's going to sound like i'm implying that common people are stupid and actually believe the opposite but that like um you're necessarily because of your playing to certain people's um preconceived notions of engagement executive function etc 
gonna make it frankly stupid like like memes are inherently like they're meta commentary they're interesting they they're self-reflective but they're necessarily shadow shallow because they're meta commentary and when you're trying to distill like complicated um sociological processes into something that can, can lead to like a five second engagement click right. um it's it it's it's nearly impossible to do i mean it's something i battle with even in the like uh the youtube world because people want me to make um like 12 15 minute videos where i can explain the history of communism to them or whatever <laughs> and that's impossible right. and people who do it can only do it by adopting like a, an adam curtis style where you throw a bunch of random things in and then you impose a meta narrative on it and make people feel like they've learned more than they've actually learned. And, you know, when I, when I approach a project, um, my, my goal um, in that approach is whether it's artistic or political commentary now is actually um, to unsettle your own uh, to I, I aim to put bombs that seem to undermine even my own worldview in it so that people will do, will have to go out and do their work themselves or they won't understand what's going on. Exactly. Like, you know, so this, is, this is exactly <laughs> what um, my idea of the acid left or acid communism is about. And I, let me mm -hmm. just articulate something on that because, you know, um, uh, Mike Watson uh, who's a zero books writer and uh, and independently uh, writing as well, and for whom I have a lot of respect, his work. Mm -hmm. you know, we were doing a, a program uh, up to the pandemic and just a little into it called uh, Theory Wave Nights coming out of uh, Finland, where he is at this time. And uh, I know in one episode, we, I, we actually, I, I backed away from it because of commitments, you know, in the chaos of the pandemic here in New York City. But um, we had a program where we were discussing what acid communism, and I, I take the acid left to be essentially the same thing, means. And, uh, and we had a, a very sharp disagreement. His was uh, focused on Horkheimer, focused on Adorno, focused on memes. And that is what I'm hearing uh, you are pointing out as being against, which I share that even though I respect what Mike does and I respect anyone making those beams, I think of uh, acid, the acid left as a perspective. And uh, as a perspective, it's a perspective that allows for more confusion, that allows for less certainty, that allows for uh, a dissolution of boundaries or an imposition of new boundaries or uh, a, a radical admixture of elements, um, and and far less than is able to be contained in a podcast or a book or uh, you know a meme like that. And so, mine is a, as you said, bombs under your own uh, on your own opinions. It can't really contain politics. Politics becomes an element within these uh, this uncertainty and this reconsideration. But it's not uh, it's not politics turned into art. Certainly, right. Well, you know, uh, th this uh, this will actually, you know, eventually we'll get more into the work. But this is an sure. interesting point that I that I think about a lot because, 
one of the things that I, I, I think about quite a bit is the appearance of the separation between the spheres of life is a, uh, is a, is a development of modernity and specifically of capitalism, but it was also true of some other um, possible modern forms like um, French absolutism um, and all that also had, you know, you started having discrete separate spheres and separate estates having, you know, different social functions in a way that was actually not true in the prior medieval epoch, et cetera. Um, One of the things that I like to play around with, um, I I always talk about like there's a dialectical tension to use a pretentious word between people who are economistic who think things are, you know, basically determined by the economy and it's either going to lead to catastrophe and the catastrophe is going to force communism or, um, or like if we just develop the productive forces enough, um, things will be centralized enough from, from, uh, from corporatization then we can just democratically take over the, the government and like grab these massive mega structures from, ca- from capitalist. Um, and then we have communism, um, um, and while this sounds, both of these sound like a ludicrous position, um, they're actually historical positions of different Marxists of significance. If yes. you if you break down their jargon, um, so those are the economistic forms. Then you have the political deterministic forms who think that no, the only class that matters is a class for itself. The class in itself isn't real, and I could get into that distinction. Um, and thus, we just need to create a Marxist party that has proletarian beliefs um and then enforce that and because because the party has mark you know marxism or whatever form of marxism we hold to and that's going to be our best tool we know better than the working class does what it's supposed to do and we can create the conditions for you know and i think both of these um approaches to human life are fundamentally flawed like flawed in a way that um that lead to uh, nothing but mega tragedy and i think the 20th century to me discredits both of them but it's also they're also not coherent from from like the whole idea of alienation and um and marxist thought in the first place because um if we realize that all our all of our, you know, modes of production or whatever to use Marx's words are kinds of, inf- you know, tacitly enforced relationships, then we have to admit that like politics is a very nebulous field in which, in which um, there's been like two different tendencies to make everything political. Um, you know, that was an anarchist tendency and a liberal tendency for a long time. Right. Um, or to make, and I think a lot of people on the on the dirtbag end of the acid left are, are guilty of this to make nothing political, except what is already explicitly stated to be political, and you know, or like this eschatology of of like the working class emergence and this that and the other, um, and you know, aesthetically and as a theorist, I am opposed to both those things, and I want to I want to point out like. You can't like you can't separate that stuff out. You can't even like the the separation between to- culture, politics, and economics is even in modernity is somewhat 
false. Like it's it's like a it's like a necessary falsehood. Right. Um, like we, we we stuff works because we because we don't see that you know these um these are just different ways of talking about the same kinds of relationships. Um, and that that is a thought that goes into my poetry. Like that's one of the things that I think um, that you know my poetry is obtuse in a lot of ways. Not going to lie, but it's 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 a thought that it's going into what I do because I'm like, well, you can't set if like if you're trying to look at the way humans actually deal with themselves and all the stuff going on, you can't separate that out in the, any one field. And I, what I found interesting about the acid communism movement is like, you know, um, you were talking about uh, Mike Watson being into Horkheimer and, and Adorno and memes. What, what I find funny is Horkheimer and Adorno thought that, you know, basically the mass production, the mass production of, um, of culture itself was like super destructive. They'd, they'd hate memes, probably. Yeah. Yeah. They for sure would hate me. memes. Would be way worse than jazz. Yeah, like, you know, like to, to make a joke that people won't get unless they're into that stuff. But like, you know, that that what's that what would be going on. I mean, like even their problem with jazz is often misread as like, oh, Adorno is rejecting um, black music or whatever. But he was rejecting big band jazz that was mass produced in the forties. Yeah. And what bothered him is at the time it was mass producible, like. Um, in ways that um, it was very hard to do at the time would say like orchestral avant-garde music. It would just be really hard to recreate that. Um, Now you can. So, um, and you weirdly saw, and and this is after time, way after the time Adorno was writing about jazz, that, you know, jazz is now associated with a similar movement. Like when we think about jazz, we actually, you know, if we're not thinking about like, you know, like piano jazz borderline on Muzak, we're often thinking about like Annette Coleman, which are even Miles Davis and the more popular form of it or something like that, where like the things that Adorno was rejecting in jazz have now manifested in jazz itself through its own history, but had not done so yet when he was writing about it. And jazz when he was writing about it was a black art form that had been thoroughly whiteified and mass produced right um well i so. at one time considered um i i played jazz and uh was very much into being a musician uh briefly and mm-hmm. my to me jazz is always that um really edgy fusion type work you know i when i think of jazz actually one of the first things i think of is bill laswell which uh, is not even jazz. It's just some <laughs> outlying uh, funk jazz melding, you know, mm-hmm. edgy type thing. So, uh, you know, the, the thing is, with I, I see a, my own meta narrative in this, at least the way I take uh, these things and the way I, I contextualize or categorize these things. And that is that, you know, there's an overarching project of soul creation, to use James Hillman's mm-hmm. term, uh, James Hillman's way of saying soul, uh, not in the sense of, a, a, you know, an element, an additional factor, but in the sense of an expansive insight growing liberatory project that incorporates mm-hmm. how we produce uh, for our needs, 
how we uh, party, how we create art, uh, how we fuck, how we, you know, trip, how, how, whatever, you know, activity you want to put in it and whatever relation you put in it is an evolutionary, expansive, transformative, liberatory project. And uh, mm -hmm. to me, like, if we're going to discuss just politics and we're looking at specific policy in the U.S., it almost always becomes, as you were alluding to at the very first, uh, a matter of bipartisan or partisan politics within the U.S. and, and dreary, really. Um, I, I view U.S. politics as a, a phenomenal bore, uh, unfortunately, because mm -hmm. it doesn't have to be. But, um, but it always comes down to that. And I, I think that, you know, if, if anything, the Acid Left Project can uh, transform that so that you're not simply looking at more of the same boredom with uh, trying to figure out how to live. And that's, uh, that's what great art does, you know, and that's also uh, trying to promote some of these artists, which is uh, an addition to, you know, Mysterioso books and The Acid Left and things like that. The project is to, uh, to get some vitality back in the arts so that when, you know, you take from uh, poetry or you take from painting or music, something that really uh, affects your life, that stands as a, as a fulcrum for a great change, you know, as art does. But so much of the art, thinking of visual arts here in, in New York City, for instance, um, it's schlock made by trust fund kids. And it's, um, it's forgettable before you even see it, <laughs> you know. So I'd, I'd like to see if there's any way to return some of the, the transformative power of art and uh, to to art to us, and to see if we can do something similar in politics, even if it is confusing and uh, it doesn't have a, a definite uh, attachment to you know historical reference and things like that. But let's right. let's talk about your poetry for and like because uh, we've got there's so many subjects I don't want to get lost from the work itself. Uh, the book that's coming out from Mysterioso Books, our first book is C. Derek Barnes, Liberation and All the Other, Bright, etc. Can, uh, can you tell us a little more, more up tell me about the, the production of it, like some of the, the, the circumstances that went into it, and then maybe we'll, uh, you can pick out uh, a poem to read and pivot off that? So I um, am, a and I, am a very slow and very fast writer at the same time, and I know that's a, a very strange thing to say. But basically, I draft, I can draft two or three poems a day. Um, but my revision process partly become, because I'm dyslexic, aphasic, and synesthesiac, which is its own special thing, um, and partly because um, I think a lot of this, I think a lot of the uh, process of understanding your own art is to become alienated from its initial instantiation. And so, like, for example, I, even, even though I love a lot of the, the, um, the more obscure beat poets uh, like Gregory Corso or whatever, and they're a big influence on me, sure. the beat insistent on like the, you know, authenticity and coming from the initial moment, um, I absolutely hate and don't believe in. And so this book, interestingly, um, so one thing I tend to do is I tend to write a lot of collections, um, and not publish them and then cannibalize them. 
And so you asked me to, you know, you asked me if I had something, you know, chatbot wise I could do. And so I was working on a couple of different projects. And when you asked me that, and um, a series of poems about dealing with, you know, my ex-wife getting cancer. And uh, when I lived in Egypt, a series of poems exploring um, the the weird way that like religious and um, uh, um, political liberation and artistic liberation all rhyme with each other, but also undermine each other. Um, and, um, I kind of focus on, you know, like trying to figure out what, what would a responsible po- poetics of, of dealing with like liberatory ideas be now. And so what I, what I set out to do is I went through about, I wrote about, a third of it new for you. And then I also went through a bunch of poems that I had that I originally wanted to go in other collections or were a part of these cycles that I was working on that didn't fit, but, but um, had images or thematic concerns that overlapped with what I was writing fresh. And sure. so I then um, actually I then sat down with my partner, who's also a poet, and we kind of put them into piles and we were just like, okay, what are the three or four threads, um, you know, that hold all this together? Um, And um, the one thing I would, I would say about it, partly because it came out of the beginning of the pandemic, which for me, the, the pandemic has been interesting as far as like, I thought it would lead to me writing a whole bunch of art. Um, and at first it did, and it's gone back to recently, but I found that in the height of the pandemic, after I produced this book, I actually couldn't write poems for like, of any significance for like six months. Um, and my head just couldn't get in it. Trying to comment on the pandemic directly just seemed to, you know, it's like was trying to write 9-11 poetry right after 9-11 or any kind of trying to write a poem about the a primal trauma during the primal trauma, um, even when it's not social like that, is almost impossible to do. Um, and what made this interesting to do is like, there are poems that I wrote um, specifically about the beginning of the pandemic in this book for you, but th- they're they're woven in more about, you know, trying to make um, liberatory stuff come out of a traumatic experience or trying to deal with like being wrong about something that you thought might be uh, liberational. And, and that's how I approached it. Not like, Oh, I'm going to write a series of pandemic poems or whatever. And I know, I know there are poets who can work that way. And some people have done some interesting work, but um, that wasn't what I did. So the process of this, you know, this is a very long way of saying like it, it was, it's stitched out of me trying to find themes and things that are written over. Uh, um, some of these poems you got, go back to the draft for my first book, but some of them are from collections that I've just never even like tried to publish. Sure. <laughs> and, and some of them were written specifically on this theme and then I and then once we did this, what I did after I did those piles is I rewrote some of these poems in my current mindset, which I had also done with my first book. So my first book was 
originally my um my MFA thesis um and then I cut out 60% of it and uh and worked on it for 10 years and then revised it and significantly wrote even poems I'd already published um in a in so that there was a mindset consistency to it through my revi- my revision process so after I did all that, I sat down and I rewrote almost all these poems that I was going to put in the collection for you. Um, um, and some of them had, you know, not that many changes or just an image or two added to tie them to something else. And some of them were completely reworked, even though I didn't think I was originally going to do that. Um, so what's a poem you would like to read right now? Sure. Um, I'll start off with the first poem in the book because it's, it, I think it gets to a lot of these tensions that we're talking about. It's called, I did not come to bring peace. Um, Did someone order the blitz? The foliage burns bright orange, but not hot enough to leave embers true blue, hometown blues. I should have pillaged the vinyl siding to make napalm. Left this ranch house uh, homes naked, insulation exposed. I came weary on a megabus, but I leave riding a pale horse. Golden eagle perched on my leather-clad wrist with a wineskin full of kerosene and a quiver full of arrows. From Atlanta to Mobile, I will leave only scorched debris to feed the kudzu. I feed the eagle the lungs of each kill, deck my saddle with the notes of Sherman's biography and, and the antlers of white-tailed deer left on the side of the road. I watch men sleep on the bus, riding to nowhere, and then to the maze of Peachtree Streets, that make the concrete grove outside of I-85. It is home that grows each hunter and each con. Memories to sack and raise. Who holds church for our sacred mission? If you see me, you should know that I love you, but I have good aim and I need the fuel to burn so I can see the future. You know, before uh, you say anything else, I do have to comment As a Southerner, as a guy from Kentucky, uh, to mm-hmm. a guy from Georgia, uh, like this imagery is very resonant with me. <clears throat> Excuse me. You know, it's it's clearly uh, Georgian imagery. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it's Georgian imagery. Yet there's also like the whole overlay is. Um, is uh you know i i like to this this poem is 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 dire as it feels actually comes out of a joke about like um how if i couldn't have communism you know through democratic means that i would just become like genghis khan (laughs) um and i was writing home um uh on um uh, really on a megabus i'd i'd gone to mobile to do a reading um well, I'd gone to New Orleans to do a reading um, for my first book, actually, when I wrote this. And then I was going home to do another reading at my home college and to see my parents who were sick at the time. And um, I was also reading parts of Sherman's autobiography. Um, and I was thinking, like, you know, it's funny how much I love the South, but also how much, like, I think it fundamentally should have never existed. <laughs> and... Um, <laughs> Um, and so I just thought about how, like, once you have those realizations and you you really can't go home again, but you also like, like you, you, um, 
if you want to fundamentally change it, it's like a, it's like almost a violent rupture, like in your own mind. Um, and so that's what the poem is really about. It's also one of yeah, it's one of the the poems that is clearly more American and more about one place. And that you know, throughout the book, that actually gets less and less true. Um, but yeah, so that's what's driving that poem. And you know, I've um, I've experienced that quite a bit too. When you uh, the distance, especially as someone from that southeastern quadrant of the U.S., the distance you can feel of. Uh, leaving it and meeting the rest of the world because it's a it's existence still as a hallucinatory experience for the people in it depends on uh continually uh mainlining these uh, american lives like you can't um, you can't be a southerner claim that as an ongoing uh, identity without really really drinking this uh this poison mixture you know of a white supremacy of this distorted history of uh you know like georgia georgia was began as a, a white supremacist colony essentially it was meant to to prevent um slaves from getting to florida where they could join the spanish and wage war on the colonies and so well i mean i i will say that that's true and yet there's also a complication to that that is true. So Oglethorpe, as it was originally yeah. set up, was also an anti-slavery colony. Yeah. It only lasted as such for about 25 years because the the um, the local populations just kept kept dying. Um, so, but it, even when it was an anti-slavery colony, the reason why the British let it be set up is exactly what you think. It was that they wanted a buffer state, even if it was like this um, reformatory, basically like quasi-penal colony that did, that did not have slaves right. um, to to stop people running to the Spanish. But also like – let's be clear. The Spanish at this time were also slavers. In fact, they were more slavers than the British were. Oh, yeah, this was just but, a strategic thing that was going on. Right. And so, yeah, so, like, there's there's all these ironies of history. Like, so so the, the idea of a reformist colony – I mean, one thing about, like, Georgia is its initial um, ethnic stock um, was super, super Irish and also has one of the, the second um, Jewish population of the New World because um, – the British literally had a like, well, let all of our quote undesirables go there. And as long as they're not Catholic, if they're Irish Protestants or if they're Jewish, we don't care if they're Christians, they're just not Catholic and we need them there as a buffer state. Yeah. Like, so, they, so there's just like these good, well-meaning liberals who have this idea of a, of a reform colony and then it's going to actually, they initially felt they'll even work peacefully with the native tribes there. Right. Because they're they're better. They're not going to try to, like, subjugate and slave them like the uh, um, like the, um, the uh, no, no, not the English, like the uh, like the Spanish were like and they weren't going to do what the, the Charlestonites and the Carolinas were doing. Like they weren't going there to be to be part of the slave trade. It was like this Protestant reformist um hyper liberal view but the only reason it was allowed in the first place was to perpetuate white supremacy yeah um in this way 
Right. Um, but it's also one of the things that I like to point out that like, okay, the Sun Belt, and if you include in that like Texas and um, all of the, you know the non-California parts of 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 um, of Mexico at the time, and also actual Mexico, because occasionally you'll see maps that where Mexico will claim all the way up to like part of Canada and like yeah, <laughs> well, like like it, was, was part of it right. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm like, you. That was that was that's interesting, and it's also weirdly itself ignoring the fact that Mexico was also a settler colonial project. Yeah. Um, but it, you know, you, this this whole this whole attempt at liberation ends up being a thing that causes probably the second most reactionary state in the in the Confederacy, right? I mean, Georgia's Georgia's brutal. Um, like, and it's actually even more brutal after the Confederacy. Like, like there's probably more lynchings there than almost anywhere else. Right. Um, but um, it's also this area that was ethnically diverse before the rest of the settler colonies in the Americas were. Like, um, like it was the like those areas were the most diverse and the and and you know if you think about like maybe the most backward state in the union now, um, which I would probably say is Louisiana or Mississippi, right? Um, um, those areas are also the most ethnically racially diverse areas of the country, historically speaking. The, the, like recent rates of immigration has made that slightly less true, but like, yeah. but that's I, definitely true historically. I find that to be very interesting that, you know, um, in meeting people from other areas of the United States, um, you're more likely to find people in the South who have friends that are from a different um, so-called race, a different ethnicity, um, outside of New York City, which has like tons of immigrants, of course, and, and it's, it's such a, a mixed population. But you're more likely to find them in the South because people work together, people were together. You know, you have uh, white and black sharecroppers that, that joined, you know, to to fight the the, the ruling class essentially. And uh, it's odd that like the uh, as you're talking about the backwardness of that area is so prominent as well. You know, I I was down in Savannah uh, 15 years ago, something like that, and uh, I was with a, a couple. The couple uh, was a gay couple an elderly gay couple and they wanted to go to an event that was hosted by some prominent families uh, in Savannah. Now, this is a gay couple and one member was Jewish that are being uh, hosted or being invited to this event hosted by old school white supremacist families. And uh, mm -hmm. the lady I was with at the time was, you know, green eyed and blonde haired. But uh, one of the, the members of the couple said, I don't know that you would be uh, welcome with open arms to me because I'm a little darker complected and I have black hair. I've shaved my head now, but, but when, when I wasn't shaving it, it was, uh, it's black. And uh, they said, you know, you, uh, you don't look fully white. So with this weird pinballing of racial ideas, of illusions, against that you have uh, a rich rich African-American history. You know, we were down at the, uh, the African Methodist Church in Savannah that has, like, the beautiful uh, patterns on the floor that still remain from, you know, when slaves were carrying, uh, you know, these, these 
uh, Afro-Caribbean traditions, religious traditions, and making those patterns, you know, in the flooring uh, with it from which they could listen to the the Protestant sermons. Like, what a crazy back and forth of, of racial nuttiness with uh, history, which of course is racial nuttiness, but just a such a strange combination. But you, but at the same time, you're right up against each other. Right. Well, I mean, it's even in like Southern dialect, for example, like um, when people talk about, I've heard some, frankly, liberals talk about white people using law, y'all as cultural appropriation. I'm like, well, y'all as a linguistic construction actually goes back to, to Southern dialect English, which is actually closer to English spoken in the West Midlands and North Umbria and where the areas of like Scotch Irish and the yeah. borderlands of, uh, and it's, actually more grammatically correct to English and was just dropped because it got associated with the lower classes and with black people because the lower classes and black people mixed together. So you had patterns of English speaking coming from West, from like West African ways of speaking mixed in with patterns of older forms of, of English and they're in, you can't separate them out. So uh, another example of this, and I don't write like this. Um, I don't even have my Southern accent anymore. Like, like I have less of one than you do. But it's it's interesting um, uh, thinking about this when it comes to like poetry and uh, modern ideas about like appropriation and cultural appropriation, all that. Because historically speaking, there's a way in which like um, and uh, African American culture, because of the trauma of its initiation and because like it really smashes the diaspora, actually mirrors quote, white culture, and that its relationship to its home cultures is fragmented and largely not understood, right. even by the people who did it. And and just like a lot of white traditions actually in the South come from Africa, um, you know, okra, a lot of Southern, a lot of staple Southern foods came from, um, uh, you know, people from West Africa bringing West and even East African crops over right. and people realizing it tasted better <laughs> and also that you couldn't sell it to the Northeast because they didn't know what it was. And so it was allowed to stay in the South. Um, and that was also affecting poor, you know, poor white farmers, but there's no way to separate those cultures out, even though the, the entire time they were also developing, like one of the insistence on purity of whiteness in the South was this was to try to create the illusion that the cultures were separated when they could not be like, yeah. It's, it's, you know, that, that, that part of Southern history, and it, it makes me distrust a lot of, frankly, liberal-ish or even radical discussions about race and stuff, because, I mean, I don't mean to sound like an asshole who almost sounds like a conservative, but, like, a lot of people who talk, who talk about this in these really meaningful ways and about diversity or whatever, they're coming from, like, Portland, which is objectively, <laughs> one... It was historically started by the Klan, seriously. And two, oh, it is. What? Uh, yes. And two, like it's still the 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 only major metropolitan area that is like over eighty percent white. Right. So it's just it's um, it's like Salt Lake City is I think something like fifteen to twenty percent more diverse than than Portland is. And so it's just like like you know. It seems it's 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 a strange mirror world, which is not to say those people are insincere or shouldn't be doing what they're doing, because I also think that's a weird conservative impulse too. But it's 
it's those ideas that like in this book of poetry that I kind of want to break down. Um, mm. um, because uh, like the, 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 that's all. And a lot of my poetry, there's this sort of like love hate relationship with the South, but like the South identity is based on both. Ex- it's like, it's almost schizophrenic, right? It's based on both accepting your role in America and the, in the great American expansionist project. Um, while also, utterly rejecting it from the beginning yes the scout the south is absolutely schizophrenic and i did i do find anyone especially you know in your poetry um anyone taking on that project to be fascinating and i it's this is a personal thing because in my own writing i don't write poetry but i write fiction uh you know i'm i'm dealing with a lot of things like that in fact um you know i a, a friend of mine brought up a introduction or the 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 first part of, of a book of fiction um, about some southerners attempting to assassinate dick cheney in 2005 uh deals with hoodoo and we uh we got in this discussion about hoodoo hoodoo to me was always a syncretic belief system coming from european origins african origins and native origins here so I, I researched it, and apparently over the years, my, my firsthand notions and introduction to hoodoo and then these uh, semi-scholarly takes were incorrect. It actually has a much stronger African, Afro-Caribbean basis than I suspected. And, uh, and from one who was uh, eating at that table without knowing you know, the origins of the plates, so to speak, in this metaphor, Oh, it was shocking. So I actually went to uh, a man who is a leftist and an academic and uh, uh, ethnically uh, and spiritually attached to the hoodoo traditions. He's a current practitioner. I asked him Mm -hmm. to read it and give me his opinion because I was shocked. You know, I didn't realize that this thing I'd grown up with, which was syncretic um, to me, was much less syncretic if you go on a, a scholarly basis. But that's um, the same thing you were talking about. But I'm going to push back. Yeah, I'm going to push Go back ahead. on that too, though, because a lot of the scholarship right now, um, uh, if you if you go in the popular scholarship and go into deep anthropology, sure, the anthropology contra- contradicts the the, uh, the popular scholarship. So yes, there's a lot more of a connection to like Orisha religion right. and the religion of certain regions of West Africa than was previously assumed. But then it's also because they, there was synchronization with European and Christian ideas before they were even here through, um, through the Christian North Africa. Um, and so you think you get back to this pure African thing, and it's – but what does that even mean? All right. One thing I like to bring up is Chinua Chibe's uh, English in the African uh, – the English language in the African writer where he talks about like, and you know, he supports decolonization, but he's like, well, but decolonization based on nationalism, like nations are a European idea. Exactly. And, yes. and, and I like, uh, yeah, like he's like, even our, even our ability to decolonize is still weirdly based on the encounter with European modernity. Like we can't, we can't undo that. Um, and and if we try to, you know, go back and embrace our true pre, um, pre-European identity, there's no sense of Africanness. And you see this, like, for example, with the, um, with the Asian diaspora in America, and 
actual existing ethnic groups in Asia because Koreans have very little sense of there's an Asian people to which we belong. Right. Like, um, uh, yes, we might be more closely related to the Japanese and Chinese, but we are our own individual race. Now, even that racial language, ironically, comes from local ethnic traditions mixing with German ideas about blood race that came in through Japan. But sure. like, like that's the way it's experienced. And the idea that um, you would uh, have more sympathy to uh, a Chinese person or a Japanese person than to a American, for example. Well, from the Korean's perspective, they're all they all have a history of colonization there. They've all been, they've all tried to settle or colonize it. And the Americans are the most recent, but also the least, the people who have tried to take over the least from the South Korean perspective. Right Right. now, like that's also, you know, like in the greater scheme of imperialism, that's distorting. Right. But like from a local perspective, it makes total sense. And yet if you talk to Korean Americans, they're often shocked by these attitudes when they go over there right. because, you know, they have the experience of the diaspora. Now I come from like, you know, the, 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 the you know, my, my heritage, like Scotch Irish diaspora and like Sephardic Jewish diaspora, et cetera. Right. right. And like, um, like my experience of like the idea of um, like if you study like Jewish, like the idea of the Jews as a unified people with a singular um, uh, like religious identity and a singular even like um, ethnic identity is somewhat unique to the A, its encounter with Christianity and B, then its encounter with European blood race ideas. Um, because like, um, the ancient, like the whole, yes, there's, um, Talmudic things that relate to that, but there is no sense really that the Sephardi were like the same bloodline as the Ashkenazi, other than the fact that, you know, if you were Cohen, and somebody has some trace all the way back to, you know, the two tribes or whatever, but like everyone kind of knew that every, people had intermarried and stuff to the point and, and conversion was a thing. Yeah. So well, Ashkenazi are like, pretty much just Europeans as far as I, I understand that in talking to people here. I mean, it, there's a claim, but the claim is more ideological and, um, you know, they were converts. Uh, well, yes and no. Even that's sketchy. Right, right. And, um, and let me just say this, because this is my take, uh, kind of a meta take on that. To go, to believe in essentialism, whether it's racial or national or um, any, any type of essentialism we get, biological, for instance, is the beginning of right-wing ideologies. Uh, to mm-hmm. deny essentialism, to me, is right at the very foundation of what I consider to be leftism or more liberatory philosophies. Well, yeah, it's actually interesting that you bring it up and it's, this is related to what I'm doing in the book that we're talking about actually, um, is the de- deliberate conflation of these things and without trying to say 
that we should all join into like this singular modernity, even in like the multicultural solid bowl sense. Yeah. Cause right, right. I, I think that's kind of bullshit, <laughs> but um, I will, I will also say that, um, that if you think like, I think about like the experience of the nation of Islam and I've read a lot of scholarship on the nation of Islam um, one of the things the Nation of Islam is interesting to do is it's like a theodicy of, um, of black suffering, right? right. But how it, constr- it constructs its identity out of what's available to it. Scraps of Islam, um, its founder, not, its, not Elijah Muhammad, but its real founder was, was a man who's a man who looks at least half white. And the Nation <laughs> right. of Islam actually tries to justify this. Like, oh, we had to have a person found us who was who was half white because we needed someone who would understand uh, the, you know, the evil white ways or whatever. But you also see that like their particular form of astrocentrism um, and a lot of astrocentrisms do actually do this. They take, they try to invent um, a history that because they don't, because the, the, the trauma of the break with Africa is only found in the scraps. So they take the scraps that they have and actually read a bunch of white supremacist literature um, and occult literature and UFO, UFOlogy. And UFOs, and yeah, they don't talk about that publicly. I love that part of it, though. Right. <laughs> and, and they construct a theodicy out of that that actually, because of its, its sources, has a lot of the same supremacist ideas in it yes. that they're fighting. But now it's for them as opposed to for some other group. And... Um, I think that happens a lot, historically speaking. I, actually, like the, I think that's mm-hmm. most of history. You know, a man many years ago told me, he was a great historian, but I mean, he's not known or anything, he, but he's an amazing, amazingly well-read human being in terms of history. And I was mm-hmm. talking to him about Socrates. And of course, I'm, I'm a teenager, you know, and I'm, I'm, I have these fetishes we get for great philosophers that we like. Mm-hmm. But I'm, I mentioned something about Socrates' personality as it's reflected in Plato's writings. And he said, mm-hmm. maybe. He said, you know, uh, if you notice how distorted a tale from two years ago locally is at this point, can you imagine 2,000, 3,000 years and these personalities and tales getting retold and retold? So these constructions and, and quiltings, hodgepodges that we get in the Nation of Islam or the, the freaky, you know, uh, white supremacist type conspiratorial thinking, historical thinking, um, I would say, I would suspect that most of what we call history is something like that. Well, perfect example, actually bring up Plato. So I don't, I, I think you cannot think of ancient Greeks as white and are Western. For right. example, part of the major Platonic schools that are, that are brought up in the, even in the time as early as Aristotle. So you're not even in the Hellenistic kingdoms period, right? Um, they're in Serenia. Well, where is Serenia? Libya. Yeah. Where, where is most of the Greek world? It's Perfect. in Anatolia and in, Nor- in, in Northern Africa, right? Yeah. Like it has, like, it's ties to history, like the modern nations of Greece ties to historical greater Greece is actually pretty somewhat like invented itself. But then you take when the Germans 
this is interesting, right? So the idea that the Greeks are the foundation of Western civilization and not, say, the Romans, which is what the British and Americans believed, right? Right. Um, um, when, the, when the Germans try to construct a history for themselves, they're like, well, we're you know, an opposed people. They cite Tacitus and talk about their historical oppressions by the Latins. Um, but also the Germans and their national unification narrative is also like, but we're the heirs of Greece and Greece is where Western culture begins. So we're the heirs of Western culture. And weirdly, a lot of people who like want to fight like, you know, racism and classics and whatever actually accept this. Yes. <laughs> they accept the racist version of the narrative about these old, like about these old dead white men who would have no idea of what we meant by whiteness whatsoever. And we're not all even from the historical regions that we consider European. And it's, it's that break of the world that, you know, for example, if, if like Greece is the foundation of Western culture, then Islamic culture is also Western. Most anti-racist narratives about about the classical world assume that the constructed mainstream German narrative, which was constructed about um, about Greece, was they take it at face value. And then a lot of people. I was reading a book called American Genocides, um, and they talk about like the the settler conquest of uh, and the genocides of indigenous peoples in the America in the United States being based off of like ancient Roman ideas that came into, but they read the racist readings of, of um, the racialist use of Roman thought as being actual Roman thought. So they're actually projecting, you know, a, a, a modern myth um, that people are abusing history to construct. They're projecting that back in history itself in the way that they approach these ideas and text. And, um, and I think that happens a lot and, and it's where a lot of liberatory things go reactionary. And I was going to mention why it was related to the book because it's actually the very next poem is a little bit about some of these ideas and how complicated it gets. Yeah. Let's so, get back to that. Yeah. Uh, and you, you want to go with the second poem? Yeah. It's from desert to desert. Um, in Moab, the fall seems without end. Seasons gape open. Light shines on red rock in the creation spiral petroglyph, faint against stone and sky. Afternoon wilted tea leaves whose bruised dyes is a water, blooded mud. I remember the fellaheen on the edge of Aswan with the bunched sugarcane in an AK-47, imagining him offing the branches of date palms from the safety of the bus. The Nile cuts the horizon line. Now in this different desert, we have nothing but our own muscles to guide us down. You scurry down the rock and I watch hornets near the purple cactus. The memory abrades down from the dust moat and the sharpened desert edge from desert to desert. When I walk down the mountain, 
I imagine the meal made of my marrow, all the love safe in the origins of bloods, supped to sate the dryness. Memories, exploiting dates mixed with shell casings, all there is to offer itself is here. We reach the bottom, silent and bright heat. And there's, you know, that doesn't, it just sounds like, uh, you know, me describing a memory of um, the the Western desert and Egypt with the Western desert and um, with the Southwestern desert in uh, Utah. But one of the, one of the things that you can even get from the initial comparison is Moab, for example, is a, is, is an area in, um, in the greater Levant, but it's also a place that the Mormons appropriated all these, uh, Levant names, um, and actually made a bunch up. <laughs> um, right. I mean, they would reject that they made a bunch up, but they made a bunch up. Um, and, so there's there's the, there's like a, a historical reason for there to be all these rhyming beyond just like um, an accident. Right. So, you know, that's what the poem is really kind of about is like the ways in which our histories and our notions of like who we are and who are what our bloodlines are and where we go back to, particularly in the context of Utah, where there's literally, you know, Mormons inventing a pseudo history for themselves. Um, that, that, uh, that are necessarily somewhat fake. You know, I get this idea, um, as you, um, as you're creating these poems, and you have this backdrop um, meta notion of liberation. How do you see that against uh, the falsity of history? Do you know what I'm saying? Like if uh, we have our ideas of liberation are themselves embedded in this illusion, mm-hmm. how do you see coming to any uh, sobriety? I hate that word in a way, but any uh, any clean. Um, sight out of uh, out of historical out, out of history which we'll just call you know an illusion itself well, well I, w- I would say and one of the one of the themes in the book is that it's always a, a perpetual kind of rediscovering of a hard truth that makes some of the illusions that you believe more difficult and if you're going to really liberate yourself, it's actually an ugly, painful process. It's not, it, it is not, this is not to say it's not full of joy and transformation, but like, um, if you portray it as all that, you're lying. And the first person you're lying to is yourself. Um, and that's a huge theme of this book. And I think a lot of people find this book depressing because, um, because that's actually a major focus of it is like when you get to the truth, what other thing that you thought you were liberating yourself from, have you actually recapitulated? And when you need to break away from even that, like how do you continuously do that? What do you have left of yourself when you do? Um, I can actually get into a a, a more complicated poem about specifically that um, it's called the yeah. words of my perfect teachers. Um, and that that it begins with a reference to a classic Nimapa uh, um, um, 
liberation manual, which is, you know, a, a religious manual, basically. Um, it's not a Lam Rem that's from a different group, but it's, it's this idea that like, Hey, we've distilled down these practices, these preliminary practices for you. So you could liberate yourself. Um, and it's, you know, based on this guru relationship. Now there's problems in that. And, you know, a guru relationship is one of them, but I started playing with that idea in this poem. And so this is called sure. the words of my perfect teachers. Um, he said, you can swim up current into the stream of tears. If you tolerate the brief tender shock of salt in your mouth. He taught that the rustle of pine needles can be a dance or the promise of an evening or the taking in of the gasp of ghosts to which you should feed even the last lap of marrow from your bones. She said to me, we should tumble dry the sheets that you hoist yourself on, red shifting into the past and future. It is the only point there is in life, brief light, something dim, then pinpricks of light, moving even in the distance. She taught me poems can be, can guide the trembling hands of a Georgia boy with the dulled razor and the natural sponge to cut away the tumors from love, to use the milk to leach the blood from your apron. He taught me to dye the evening with colchinelle and allium, slightly deeper than blood, hope like minstrel stains. She that there is no she that there was no string theory, only filaments tie us to wires, which grow fiber optic, contain the ones and zeros of our autobiographies and our apologias, then change and in the botch code, time and retrograde, she whispered that eight legs was too many and seven too few. He taught me that the seas were never silent and the ragged claws would always be sharpened to cut away something altogether uncouth. He taught me silence to take in the arid smoke of, back, of the back spasm and the microtumors, barely benign, and to cough the gaslight yellow, transformed into fractured and brittle compassion, just warm enough to thaw the ice-dry frosted heart and soften the icicle speech into arsenic crystal and ragged glitter. They taught me that after the ghosts drank all the wine and the marrow we have left them, the air will still will be still, and there will be no greater tragedy than youth, and no greater gift than the beer stomp breakage when your titanium jaw is exposed as fragmented glass. Okay, now, th admittedly, that poem's super hard because the level of references I'm doing and the amount of stuff you kind of need to know as background to get all the references. But one of the things you can see is even without knowing most of the references. And one of the things I always say about my poems, you don't need to actually know what I'm referring to. You can still understand it if you go with its emotional resonance True. and you keep on seeing images of sadness being turned into images of liberation, but then images of liberation turning back in on themselves because it's perpetual um, unfolding and having to go deeper and then in going deeper, something else has to be cut away and something else has to be cut away and something else has to be cut away. Now, in, in Buddhism, ultimately, um, your goal is either um, uh, bodhisattvahood or arahood, but both actually mean a negation of yourself because the self that you created was not real in the first place and that and that you, your view of yourself is a collection of aggregates and histories which you have very little control over and which definitely affect you. 
I mean, and in Buddhism, even metaphysically through karma, but karma in, in classical Buddhism is, and even in an Indo-Tibetan Buddhism, is um, not just like moral reward and punishment. It is literally the causation going back to the beginning of it, of eternal history and will last until the end of space itself. Right. So like th there is a way in which, which you're both liberating yourself and then realizing that each time you do so, there's one more illusion you have to cut away and it's that much more painful to do. But if you don't do it, it becomes cancerous it it uh it bubbles up and becomes another myth to which you can hold on to and lie to yourself and um that that's really what that poem is about is how, what if you're really going to go about liberating yourself yes it's fun and joyous but it's also bloody and and you really have to get into the muck it's almost in the way, like when you think about the way, like Nietzsche talks about Dionysus or something like, like, yes, it's liberatory and beautiful, but it's also dark and catonic. And this party is also a God of a, of, of a God who is, who is, spends a fair amount of his time as a God of death. Yes. Well, you know, I feel like, um, the, what, what you're aiming for is something very much, um, not to, uh, not to tone this down, but very much Zen like uh, to me. You know, it, Zen isn't a, a thing you can, can communicate verbally, but you have with Zen this idea that uh, we seek liberation by further removing illusion. And as you said uh, correctly, in my, my estimate, you know, removing that illusion simply leads to the discovery of another illusion, another illusory basis. And the, the, the path to liberation is to move completely away from the seeking of liberation, just the, mm -hmm. the path that seeks further to remove an illusion and to, to perpetuate that cycle. Well, I, I mean, you, ultimately you realize that, um, that, that in, in, in truly liberating yourself, you, you really do unmoor your sense of identity because in some ways your subjectivity is defined <laughs> by what you're against. Um, yes. so yeah, let's do one. Let's talk about one more poem. Have you read that? And then, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll stop this discussion, but you know, there's so much in here, um, that you could easily, we could set up another time and just dive into any of these topics. Uh, you know, some of what you were talking about earlier with, uh, the acid left, acid mm -hmm. communism, you know, I'd really like to get into that. And also ideas, you know, when we talk about Matt Taibbi, for instance, uh, and I hate even saying cancel culture because that's now, a, a, you know, a popular idea, a faddish idea, it really, because it's, it's something that's in, interwoven into our discussions, you know, since, since writing. But the, uh, this idea of the artist and the artist's creation and how we can separate those two you know, so that we, we have an artist who's a pedophile or an artist mm -hmm. who's a racist or an artist um, who abused his or her spouse, usually his, obviously. But, you know, and then and or had political ideas expressed that are now like uh, chopped up. They, perhaps they, they had a, a dovetailing in with Marxist ideas, but today's Marxism excludes them. And now we, you know, we critique them and their work on this basis. 
that itself is to me a, a fascinating discussion. But, mm -hmm. but just for for time right now, uh, what other poem would you like to read? I'll um, read um, Hypex Lugaminnon, um, which might you know, uh, which I'll explain what that that term means in a, in a little while. But sure. yeah, Hypex Lugaminnon, and it starts with a with an one of the few times I've used an epigraph that is actually a complete work. Um, Lepers break into the temple and drink the dregs of what is in the sacrificial pitchers. This is repeated over and over again. Finally, it can be calculated in advance and it becomes part of the ceremony. Kafka. Why stop at the ankle when you can render the whole bone? Confuse the marrow for affection. You add lilac and lavender to the stew. Make the awful fragrant. The morass slides down easier. The smell sweetens a bitter deal. This is how you write about cancer. Mostly it's boring. Long periods of thin veins, vomit, fragility, and thus hard to write without the clenched teeth of cliches, overcooked and musted, nothing left to bite. There are no bird entrails in this miasma. You feed me ether. Birds are dreadfully boring. Even the cormorants and jays that lounge in my poems find analogies to flight slide into the gullet like stale potatoes, blighted by sunlight when they grew. Their inner nightshade churning your guts afterwards when we sap love, glutinous and viciously viscous, dripping down the throat like okra slime. We both feel full. In the distance, bone-white lightning fries the short-leaf pine and sears the sap. I will say this only once. Pain is pain, not a symbol. The desert grass reduces to straw with the husk of ribosome roots, so the thunder brings kindling for our meal, the blood meal of our host is ourselves. You strip even the marrow, and in the end, as the flesh boils to water, our words linger in the air. In times like this, Serrano's Christ and the deep amber of his urine allow us to see the shadows of the sacral, the tumor-bursting mad metabolic life. And um, so hypaxlamaminon is a, is a phenomenon of linguistics that means that something can be said only once within a certain context, that, that you literally can only say it once and it have the original meaning. Now, sometimes it's used now to mean like, oh, this phrase only appears once in an author's work. But originally, it's what it meant. Like, it can only be said once to have that meaning. Once right. it is said, it can never have that meaning again. And, um, you know, I always talk about, like, the most tragic, you know, things that people deal with in their daily life are, are often um, presented, you know, in the most melodramic and maudlin and meaningless fashion so that even something like cancer, which is a horrifying experience people go through and something that, um, I mean, it's also like, it's the ultimate ironic disease, right? You're dying because you can't stop producing life. It is no longer, your cells aren't dying like they're supposed to be. And now it's killing you. Yes. Um, and, and, um, that, but but even writing about that becomes nearly impossible because the instantiation of the way we want to talk about it, the once you said it, it exists in the world in this way that gets further uh, for, further and further removed from the initial like traumatic action, and um, it become like it becomes like well in one way this is something that that is utterly 
that is very real and enough people experience that um, it should be something that's massively able to open up to people. But yet I can tell you like poems about cancer are usually like the hardest to read and most cliche um, because you're, you're repeating things that, that can't ever get back to that original instantiation when you say them. And that's also what's going on with that Kafka epigraph is like, eventually the shock of the leopards just becomes part of the whole ceremony. It's, it's, it's figured in because you can't do anything about it. And the initial shock of why it freaked you out is, is gone. It's been made safe. Um, and, um, that's, you know, what's going on there. And so like, Oh, I think this way about a lot of liberatory ideas too. Once, once you start to articulate them, um, in their initial impulse and they become, uh, sort of routinized and, um, you know, there becomes an orthodoxy about them. Um, they're almost impossible to find what would have ever been attractive about them in the first place. I mean, you think about like, you know, Hannah Arendt has a, a lot of problems about her and is kind of reactionary in a lot of ways, but sure. her, her statement that like the revolutionary will, will almost become the more, the most conservative person, you know, after the revolution to protect whatever gains they have. Right. And thus it becomes actually a conservative force is, is very real. Like, so if you if you can't yeah it, that's almost uh, mm. that in itself is almost a cliche i mean it's historically go ahead yeah i mean yeah, and even like that right exactly like it's like it's historically off of, it's historically cliche to the point that people can throw it around as if well you should never do anything in the first place like right? you should you know like and yet you know there right. or you can take it as like well you just can't stop pushing um you can't stop pushing right. it through over and out. And, um, you know, I think that's what this book is all about. And I think, I think a lot of people who, who will, who want to read poems, um, without a kind of irony or, or negative capacity, or even maybe like a, to use a Marxist phraseology, a dialectical tension are going to have a hard time with this book because there's a whole lot of like, you know, undermining and, is this, are you really writing about liberation at all? And um, I think I am, but I'm also pointing out that like each thing, each time you think you have a narrative, each time you think you, you undid this illusion that you think you have, like we were talking about with hoodoo, right? The first initiation is, oh, it's way more African than we ever thought. And the second initiation, ah, oh, but it's way more syncretic, even in its African form than we thought. Like each thing you right. break away you have to break away. This is, you know, you end up breaking away from this other essentialist myth, this other, I, you know, this other conservatizing force within your own thought and this, that, and the other. Yes. Yes. Which is, uh, to me, a, a powerful message for today, especially with the media, uh, pushing us to, uh, more and more simplistic reactions, you know, more and more, uh, basic essentialist takes on things. But, um, uh, We'll, we'll conclude it there. And see, Derek Vaughn, thank you so much for uh, this first talk. I think we should have many more. And this is the first uh, Mysterioso podcast. Uh, and it is also the first book produced by Mysterioso Books. This is C. Derek Vaughn's book, Liberation and All the Other Bright, etc. Thanks so much, man.